Welcome back to the program. Let's face it, our attention spans have been decapitated by modernity. Our knowledge, criticism, and even our entertainment comes to us in 140 deep characters. We ourselves can be critics just by clicking on a thumbs up. Today's serious commentary, serious criticism is in short supply, but it's not gone, even if it's in remission. One place it still survives is in the presence of James Walcott and his work primarily today on the pages of Vanity Fair. He's just published a collection of his work and essays entitled Critical Mass, and he reminds us of what it was like not that long ago when ideas seemed to matter, when we thought as well as felt and when the moral power of language made us sit up and take notice. James Walcott is the longtime culture critic for Vanity Fair. He's most recently the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Lucking Out, and his essays and commentary have appeared in The New Republic, The New York Times Book Review, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker. It is my pleasure to welcome James Walcott back to this program to talk about critical mass, four decades of essays, reviews, hand grenades, and hurrahs. James Walcott, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, and thank you for the introduction. Great to have you here. When we look at the culture today, the commentary today, so much of it being political as opposed to cultural, are we just being nostalgic for times gone by, or has something really fundamentally changed in terms of of the intellectual life of the country? Oh, I I think something has definitely changed. I uh, I think part of it is that there's less concentration, so people now don't really know where to go for, you know, there's still criticism being written, there are long essays being written. In fact, we're in in a a terrific age of literary quarterlies, which, weirdly enough, no one seems to know about, but the, you know, the influence of McSweeney's and uh, Virginia Quarterly Review. Now, they don't practice criticism quite as much, but there is a lot, but it's very, it's very spread out. It's very, you know, it's. I mean, there was a time when people knew exactly where to look for critical debate uh, and and criticism. It was, you know, the New York Review of Books and uh, Partisan Review, which went out of business quite a while ago, and uh, and the New Yorker. I mean, even the New Yorker doesn't do what it used to do in part because it doesn't have the space. Right. There's also this sense of of today people looking for reinforcement of their own ideas, this kind of confirmation bias, even in the criticism they read, as opposed to being willing to look at different sides of any particular issue. Uh, I I think that's definitely true, and I think it's been made worse on the Internet because the Internet is much more given to factionalism and also kind of, you know, uh, knee-jerk indignation, um, you know, where whereas the first thing that trips a wire, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can't read the rest of this. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to, you know. Th- there's a lot of disapproval. I mean, the funny thing is it's the kind of thing I used to see at the, at the old Village Voice when it became very factionalized, and now it's very much, you know, uh, sort of uh, like fragmented throughout the Internet. Uh, so I, I do think that there's a you know there's a real reluctance uh, you know I, and I see I see the flip side which is when certain books come out it's like it's like it's like the rowing team everybody starts rowing in unison <laughs> and you're kind of like well how did this happen the books the books barely been out a week and all of a sudden everyone's rowing in the same direction. Is that because of good public relations and good publicity or because of there's such a thirst sometimes? for some of these things that come along? 
Well, I think there is a thirst. In some cases, I mean, I'm thinking of the uh, the new Donna Tartt novel. Mm-hmm. It's her first novel in ten years, uh, and and I think you know, I think Amy Tan has a new novel. It's also her first in probably a decade. So there is there is a kind of a built up uh, thing that goes on. But one of the things I've noticed about what the internet does, which I think is really sort of unfortunate, is it obsesses about prizes. I mean, in, in, it wasn't that long ago that it was nice if something won the Booker Prize or the Man Booker Prize mm. or whatever. Now it's become this obsession uh, on the Internet with who, who is going to make the cut, who are going to be the nominees, who wasn't nominated, who, you know, I mean, it, you know, it used to be nobody cared about the Man Booker Prize. The only time you were aware of it was when the winner was announced. Now it's become this, this, again, it's a way of like people choosing up sides of, of uh, who they want to root for. But the other part of it goes to what you were talking about earlier, that there's so much disconnected clutter out there, some of it good, some of it bad, that in order to punch through that, to get any kind of awareness out there, you, you almost have to try to latch on to anything, including prizes and awards and what have you. Well, there's that, and then in terms of the writers, there's the, there's a real rhetorical overkill. Uh, you see it in books, but you see it even more in movies, where it isn't enough simply to say a movie is bad. All of a sudden, a movie is declared the worst movie ever made. Or, or you know, uh, I mean, somebody wrote that about uh, this movie, The Counselor. Now, there's no way... The Counselor can be the worst movie ever made. It's I not. mean, there's just no way, you know. But it's a way of of grabbing attention. Or, you know, some, the flip side is somebody wrote a piece uh, recently: "Is Gravity Greater Than 2001?" Now, even the people who really like Gravity would not say it's better than 2001. But it, it all of a sudden it's like, oh, you have to really jack up the hyperbole to get the page clicks. It is so interesting also, you mentioned film, that we don't take, and maybe it's because of the nature of the product, when we look at film today, we look at music today, some of the things, and a lot of the things you write about, have written about over the years that are in critical mass, this idea that those things don't have the same power and importance they once did. Yeah, they have a kind of publicity importance, but it's not the same as kind of like, you know, I mean, so much of rock and roll hits hit people at a certain point in their lives and it really did change their lives it's hard you know because part of it was the sense of discovery like you know you never heard someone like you know like if you were some you know lonely kid in a small town and then all of a sudden you heard the smiths and heard morrissey that was a revelation you know or if if you were slightly older if all of a sudden it was like oh you stumbled upon like the velvet underground or something like that but now everything is so saturated, and everything is kind of like this kind of Rococo production. I mean, whether it's Kanye West or Lady Gaga or Katy Perry or you know Miley Cyrus, it's it's as much the production values. I mean, they are, they're all acting like they're you know they're arriving in Cleopatra's barge, you know, and it it creates a kind of spectacle. But I don't think it has any kind of emotional. Power and I, I don't think it'll linger. I mean, I think we're going to look back on, say, Lady Gaga and go, "What was that all about?" Right. It it doesn't have any lasting or resonant cultural importance. And it's interesting. The one place where some of that artistic stuff is coming out today is oddly enough in television. Oh, I, yeah. I think television has. 
I mean, I, I, I do worry that television is going to, uh, in a sense, become overly pretentious and mm-hmm. overly analyzed. But, um, you know, for example, I mean, I th- I, I'm still thinking about the, se- the last season of Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had a, it had a, a quality, a novelistic quality that, uh, you know, that I think will really last. And even though I'm not, I'm not crazy about the show, it's not really my thing. Clearly, The Walking Dead has hit some chord that, um, that people are really responding to. And it's deeper than just, oh, you know, here's a show we like, what's going to happen to this character or that character? There is something going on there. And, um, and the, the long form really works well. I mean, the long, this, the kind of long form has really tapped into something mythic that people are, you know, want to respond to. It's counterintuitive in a way, because one of the things we talked about, I alluded to it in our introduction, that people's attention spans have shrunk in so many respects, and that we are used to getting quick hits of so many things. And yet, long-form television is something that we're willing to stick with, whether it's Breaking Bad or Mad Men or, or any of the things you're talking about. Well, sure. And the other thing is a lot of people... Um they binge watch. You know, they go on mm-hmm. Netflix. I know people who, you know, they they watched five episodes of of Breaking Bad in a row, or five episodes of. Oh, I, I'm only on season two of this particular show. Uh, there, you know, it was sort of hilarious was uh, the show The Wire on HBO. A lot of people didn't catch up to that until like years after it was off the air, and then they would come to you like. It was a new revelation, <laughs> you know, and, and particularly in Britain, like they discovered it late in Britain and they're like, oh, oh my God, the series is just the most amazing. And it's like, yeah, we know <laughs> we were around when it was first on the air. So it, yeah, it, it, um, no, it, it does tap into something, uh, to deeper and, uh, and, and when people are interested in something, they are willing to invest the time. They really, they are, they do get less fidgety. What additional responsibility or sense of importance does that place on this in the eyes of of somebody like you, in the eyes of a critic, and separating what's popular from what's resonant, popular from what's good? Well, I think that really just comes down to your own personal responses. I mean, there are a number of shows that I perfectly understand why they're hits and why people are addicted to them. But they don't do anything for me. Like, I was never, I, I watched episodes of it. I kept up with it sort of, you know, half-heartedly. But, you know, a show like Dexter it just never got to me. Uh, uh, the vampire series, True Blood. Uh, I'm not, a, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a distinct minority. I am not a Game of Thrones person, you know. Um, whereas other, other series, I mean, the first few seasons of Mad Men, uh, Breaking Bad, a lot of uh, the X Files when it was on, they 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 speak to me. I mean, it's there's a there's a kind of dark pull to them, and I also just think there's a kind of art. There is an artistry. It isn't just shock value and and um, an investment in the characters, although you you know you care about the characters. There there is a deeper, longer pull to it. What about personalities? I mean, you look through critical mass and so many of the people that you write about, beyond Mailer and Gore Vidal and Lou Reed and, and Johnny Carson and so many larger-than-life personalities that had such powerful influence for so long, 
it doesn't seem that we have those kind of personalities today. Again, one wonders whether it's just Mm -hmm. nostalgia or whether or not there is something different going on. Well, I do think that I do think people have been whittled whittled down mostly because they've been chipped away at because there's so much coverage now and it comes from so many different directions that it's very hard for people to sort of maintain a mystique, you know, and maintain a kind of uh, uh, not not just integrity in terms of the work they do, but an integrity of like keeping aloof, like not giving themselves out totally. Uh, to the public. I mean, Johnny Carson was an incredibly private person. Um, and it was also, you know, entertainment now is so whipped up and fake. I mean, when I watch the late night shows now, the talk show hosts basically don't have to do anything to get a roar of approval from the audience. I mean, it takes nothing. I mean, Carson would, would you know, he would sometimes bomb in the monologue, you know, and then he would extricate himself from it. Um, in terms of writing, it's definitely not in the era of uh, of um, the kind of big writers but i think i think in part because that coincided with the with the rise of the talk show mm-hmm. and mailer vidal william buckley truman capote um there were there were others like pop writers like jacqueline suzanne they really benefited benefited from the talk show those sorts of writers would not get on talk shows today and they might get on Charlie Rose, but on Charlie Rose, it's more like a seminar. So there, there's never that, there wasn't that kind of crackle of, of excitement. Um, uh, you know, that's lost. As you look at younger generations, millennials specifically today, that say over and over again that what they want is authenticity. Does that bode well for where we're going? Probably not, but I don't even know if they if pe- when when people say authenticity. I mean, authenticity can be faked, you know. <laughs> right. So it's like you know, it can you can fake that, you know. It's what what is the old political joke, you know? Once you learn to fake sincerity, everything else follows. follows. You know, it's like you know they say they you know they people say they want authenticity, but then when you see what people are drawn to, it is the most kind of obvious contrived showmanship, you know, whether it's Lady Gaga or Kanye West or, you know, Miley Cyrus. I mean, the fact is people, you know, they respond to that. So, I, you know, there's, they say that I don't, I, I'm a big believer that people don't know really what they want until they get it, and then they realize, oh my God, I've been missing this. You know, it's, it's like what Tom Wolfe said about a certain type of of journalism in the 1950s and 60s, early 60s, he said, people were so bored they didn't know they were bored. <laughs> and it wasn't until that they were like livened up by a certain type of writing that they went, oh, I don't have to be bored. Uh, and so I think that, I think that's true of all. I mean, nobody knew that they wanted Breaking Bad until they got it. And there it was. Nobody went out and did focus groups necessarily to figure out that this is what people wanted. No, and and in fact, I mean, most most networks turned it down, and you know, a lot of the shows that are huge, you know, that later became huge. I mean, for example, everyone knows the story with The Sopranos. Uh, nobody wanted, uh, you know, the lead actor. They didn't want that cast. They wanted a much more recognizable TV cast than than Gandolfini and and Edie Falco. If you were to do that as a network show, 
they would have made the wife a real babe, you know. Uh, they would have made her look like something out of Real Housewives of New Jersey. He would have been played by a much more kind of conventional actor who wouldn't have been as heavy set. But it, you know, so it wasn't until you know the show caught on that that they realized. But no, getting up to that to that point, you know, where that you know often often these shows ended up because other people were afraid of them, and or it was sort of a last resort. Um, and and I can think of some shows that like would have been. I saw a show, the, a wonderful series that lasted for one season called Swingtown. It would have been perfect for Showtime, but it was it was turned down. It was on the network. The network it, it was as good as the show could be, but the network still watered it down, and it didn't and it didn't work. So no, but focus groups it's it's a nightmare for people. That's that's why I mean part of our the great TV we're getting now is coming from paid cable where they're much less reliant on on that sort of input. Steve Jobs used to talk about it with respect to products coming out of Apple, and he would say repeatedly that they wouldn't research things. The public doesn't know what it wants. He It was his job to tell them. Well, and and he, he was so right. You know, people have done this before, but if you go back and look at the original responses to the announcement of the iPod and the iPhone and the MacBook Air, and I'm talking about on on uh, Mac and Apple sites, not mm-hmm. you know Windows sites. They were all like, "Wow, we we get another music player. You call it an iPod. What do we need this for? We've already got you know Walkmans. Oh yeah, this is stupid. You know." And they they used to use that phrase all the time, "epic fail." You know, like, "Wait a minute, this doesn't have a DVD player in it. <laughs> epic fail." Well, of course, you know. A year later, everybody had already like forgotten their all their objections. So no, he he was absolutely right. People people didn't know until they actually held it in their hands and went, oh, uh, okay, now I get it. Is there too much focus today on political commentary and trying to relate everything, even cultural things, sometimes to the politics of the time? I had a conversation with some sports writers a, a week or so ago, and even issues concerning sports and football, everything becomes red state, blue state. It, it just becomes obsessive oh. sometimes. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it really has, and it's, off, and it's usually, it's, it gets politicized over personalities, even rather more than policies. It isn't the, like a particular policy that's being argued about um, it's all about personalities. I mean, for example, the um, the New Republic just ran a piece about um, how Elizabeth Warren is is uh, Hillary Clinton's worst nightmare right. in 2016. There's no evidence that Elizabeth Warren's going to run. And I'm tell I mean, the polling shows that Elizabeth Warren's recognition factor is so minuscule compared to Hillary Clinton. But they have to kind of whip it up, and you see it in the cultural pages. I mean, I, I see. You know, certain movies are said to be like, you know, a slap at the red state, or you know, or in you know, catering to blue state prejudices, and you know, um, yeah. There's a lot of uh, you know, kind of what do they call them, thumb suckers. You know, there's a kind of cultural thumb sucker that's that's done on on a level that doesn't actually address the thing itself. When you were putting Critical Mass together and going through four decades of these essays and reviews, talk a little bit about what that process was like for you and and tripping down the proverbial memory lane. Well, I mean, one of the things, I, I had a really, I, I 
hired someone to be a researcher because so much of the Village Voice stuff is just almost impossible to get now. It's on, on microfilm, um, which is really hard to, to read. Even when it's, you know, it's printed out, you have those long, dark streaks. And, you know. So I, I would say I probably used about one piece out of 30 of, of the things I've done. You, one of the things that shocked me was when I got the clips together, was like how much I had done. And the other thing that shocked me was, as I went through it, how much I had completely forgotten that I had written. I mean, there were pieces like I, I had no memory of writing it. Uh, pieces where I had no memory of interviewing the person I was writing about, and I know I interviewed them, but it's like I look at it and go, wow. I mean, I just sort of, I mean, I guess it's the way like writers, uh, novelists who do a lot of novels at a certain point, they forget what was in their novels. So uh, one of the things that shocked me was, you know, was just how much I'd forgotten. But in a way, it's good because you look at a lot of those pieces and you go, well, I don't, you know, uh, that wasn't too bad. That's not a bad, <laughs> you know, I don't remember writing it. <laughs> I was probably unconscious. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not bad. I mean, it, uh, you know, one, it, it's, it's funny to look back because you see the tricks you used and some of the some of the tricks really make you wince now. Um, and uh, but at other times, you like you go, oh God, I had a, I had so much energy there. I was like really like focused. Um, so th- there is that. I mean, one of the one of the things that really factored in in terms of the selection was I a lot of the TV pieces in particular had dated. You know, if if shows were like available to be reseen, I thought, well, okay, then I'll give it. A, maybe I'll reprint it but a lot of the shows weren't and a lot of the references are very um 70 specific and i thought i can't be annotating them it'll just look pedantic if i have little footnotes saying this was a very popular local new york show in 1977 so that was part of the process of winnowing out uh when i got to the vanity fair pieces it was basically i had used a, a number of the political pieces before and i didn't want to ha- really run the political pieces mm-hmm. i really felt that was wrong so i kind of like to do the the big kind of overview pieces um and so you know I, I, those i all rem- i all <laughs> i remember writing all of those mm-hmm. one of the things that get you interested today what are the things you're still enjoying writing about today well, I um, I still enjoy writing about TV. I still like writing about kind of cultural phenomena, cultural crazes. Um, I'm less interested in movies because I feel movies are so oversaturated. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to do more book reviewing because I do feel like I mean one of the things that rather is dismaying is you know when I'm researching a certain topic, I'll look in, on Amazon and I'll see. There's a lot of really good work that's been done in the last five years, ten years, that that barely got reviewed. I mean, it's you know that because there's just no review space anywhere, and there's you know a lot of writers doing. I mean, we're getting in terms of like history and cultural history. There's a lot of really great work being done. Um, so I want to I want to do more of that. I also uh, I I haven't started yet, but Ballet Review has asked me to write about. Um, Broadway musicals and uh, um, you know uh, things that don't f- fall under the purview of ballet itself, but other types of dance theater and musical theater. And so I'm going to start doing that. So I'm very I've never done much of that before. So I'm very eager to see because I, I really do miss writing about live performances. Uh, in 
Critical Mass, there's a lot about the punk scene mm-hmm. and uh, and other rock music things. I and I miss writing about live things because so much of our lives now are are lived on the screen and off the screen. But there's really nothing more exciting to you know in terms of its direct impact and when you're seeing something performed live. And that's often what's given the most, you know, given short shrift in our culture. Um, there's very little in the way of, like, theater writing that holds any interest at all now. Why do you think that's given such short shrift? Well, theater's not important. You know, New York sets the tone, and New York and theater is it's a big business, but it's not vital to, to editors and writers mm-hmm. the way it used to be. I mean... There was a time when literary quarterlies had their own theater reviewer. I mean, you know, the reviews will come out months after something had opened, and sometimes months after something get closed. But, um, for example, the, the New Republic and the Nation had regular theater columns. And because of space and because I think they feel like our readers aren't interested in that, our readers are only interested in movies, that's been cut. So, you know... Um, I, I went to see something uh, this week called American Dance Machine for the 21st Century. It was a lot of uh, dancers, some of whom were on the TV series Smash. They've been in other Broadway shows, and it was kind of a showcase. And you're just staggered at how much talent there is in New York. You know, I mean, just how much young talent and actually maturing talent there is that, you know doesn't get covered and you know the often is hard it's hard for them to land the right vehicle um so i i do want to write a lot more about live performance james walcott his new book is critical mass four decades of essays reviews hand grenades and hurrahs james it is always a pleasure i thank you so much for spending time with us today well th- well thank you we'll take a break for me as well thank you we'll take a break i'll be right back